Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. For all of you into steampunk with rusted out cars, peppered with knobs, valves, hoses, and switches that do absolutely nothing, you with your unrealistic cast iron bustiers or grossly oversized cod pieces... They're both. These days, who am I to judge, right? You with your fantasies of a dystopian post-apocalyptic world full of warring tribes and factions where winning king of the hill means you slaughtered your opponents. For you that are dreaming of driving some massive armored tank-like vehicle with a Tupac impersonator and Dr. Dre belting out California love as you traverse the deserts of what used to be Oakland. Well, we're not quite there yet, but we're getting closer, right? Yes, the unrest is rising in all people groups, black, white, rich, poor, young, old, left, right, male, female, transgender, mentally stable, Democrats, mentally stable, unions, mentally stable, climate activists, mentally stable, and the list goes on and on. It seems that nobody is happy with anything these days. And can you blame anyone? We're being psychologically manipulated. We're being railroaded. We're being gaslit. Bottom line, it's almost like there are forces much bigger than ourselves, more powerful than we, that are trying to get us to destroy each other. I don't know, maybe it's just me. On today's episode, first we're going to rock down to what used to be known as Electric Avenue, but now is just a very dark, cold, and dangerous back road full of thugs and remnants of what used to be back in the days of electricity. Accurate, but admittedly not really that great a song lyrics. Then we'll find out that the Ruskies were literally the originating causal agent for the January 6th, primarily milling about, parading, and sightseeing. And as always, goal update after the bumper. So, go dust off your wooden bat with the barbed wire wrapped around it. Be careful, that stuff is sharp and probably rusty by now. You may want to get a tetanus shot before you jump into battle. And get ready to bang your head, as Quiet Riot suggests, since metal health will drive you mad. Now take up your positions. Steal your loins. Gird up your hearts. Brace your spine. And for goodness sake, dump copious amounts of powder in that bustier and or codpiece. You don't need any chafing. Because it's here we go time. So... Y'all know how everything is stupid, right? I mean, that's literally the premise of this entire podcast. Nothing I see, read, or hear in this world we're living in makes sense. Uh, Let's see if we can look at this from an eternal biblical theological worldview, because trying to understand it from a human point of view just ain't working for me. In the last few episodes, I hit on some of the absolute contradictions we're seeing. The do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do kind of view. The this-is-for-thee-not-for-me mentality. In episode 118, I termed our country a contradictatorship. It focused on the EPA bending those rules that are crucial to have so the world doesn't die a horrible heat death in order to save a few pennies per gallon of gas. So Biden can mumble something and his Marxist handlers can get him elected again, you know, to finish the job. I then touched quickly on the contradictory mandates and health advice depending on if you wanted to go to work or wanted to go riot. I mentioned all these climate figureheads running around yelling that the climate is falling, the climate is falling, while flying in their hundreds of private jets all over the world. 
I mentioned how the Down syndrome Barbie is praised as wonderful by the same people that believe a woman should be able to brutally murder her Down syndrome baby before he or she is born because he or she might have Down syndrome. And I spoke about how the press, you know, the unbiased press, with the task of holding our officials accountable, how they cheered and whooped and hollered when Biden said he was running for a second term. In episode 115, I spoke all about the push to go with battery-powered everything, bikes, motorcycles, cars, etc., and the disproportionately large number of battery fires with all of these devices and the massive devastation a burning lithium-ion battery will do. All the way back in episode 19, I spoke about California pushing electric cars while telling electric car owners to stop charging their cars. They, they didn't have enough electricity. In episode 51, I spoke about the miracle of electric school buses and cars and trucks, etc. Hey, when power generation gets overloaded, well, they can all just plug back in and help to power the grid. With no thought given to efficiency losses, the fact that once you drain your battery for the social good, you now have no transportation and an even more taxed grid because now everyone needs to recharge their bus or car or truck because they just discharge them into the grid. The phrase slightly altered comes to mind, a concept so simple a caveman could grasp it. The bottom line is that we don't have the power generation, we don't have the electrical grid, we don't have the battery technology, we don't have the infrastructure, we don't have the metals and minerals to make the parts needed, and we don't have any answers as to how all of these massive problems will be addressed. Yet our government believes that we must go all electric everything, and they claim science, the myth of climate science, which is nothing but politically based lies told for profit and power. Well, around and around and around we go. And where we stop? Oh, yeah, you know. Found on Seeking Alpha via MSN.com, headline, Risk of Summer Blackouts Rises Across Most of U.S. Power Grid Monitor Warns. Now, I gotta say, the speculation, assumption, and contradictory messages are unbelievable here. I say unbelievable, but if you've been listening to this podcast for at least, I don't know, an episode? Yeah, it's, it's totally believable. So let's start working our way through this thing, shall we? The article states, quote, most of the United States will face an elevated risk of blackouts if summer weather turns extreme, extending into parts of the southeast U.S. for the first time, according to the regulatory body that oversees power grid stability. Okay, so right off the bat, we are absolutely doomed. You know, if the summer weather turns extreme. Now, they speculate that we'll probably be fine. Quote, energy supply should be adequate as long as nothing funky happens. But quoting the North American Electric Reliability Corp, or NERC, quote, if summer temperatures spike and become more widespread, the U.S. West, Midwest, Texas, and Southeast United States, New England, and Ontario may experience resource shortfalls, but only the West, Midwest, Texas, Southeast, New England, and Ontario regions and, and areas. The rest will be just fine. Now, this was stated in a summer reliability assessment that they performed for 2023. The article then says that extreme heat, no definition of that given, specifically affects the West because they rely on other suppliers to supplement their grid, quote, to meet demand at peak or when solar production is reduced. Solar production. Keep that in mind. 
Oh, oh, wait, silly me. Not just those regions, not just the, you know, the West, Midwest, Texas, Southeast, New England, and Ontario. No, no, no. The Central Southeast region, including Tennessee, and portions of five surrounding states are predicted to be at risk due to an estimated increase of 950 megawatts with virtually no change in supply from last year. It's also being predicted that the Mid-Continent Independent System Operator, which has a wide region from the Gulf Coast up to Canada, could maybe, potentially, but I mean, come on, probably not, but maybe have problems in the unlikely event that when demand is high, the, quote, wind generator energy output is lower than expected. Wind energy... I mean, how could that possibly be lower than expected? Doesn't the world just have constant gale force winds? This massive windmill should have no problem chopping birds out of the air for a long time. You know, unless they start on fire or a, a blade blows apart or, or it just falls over like some of them have done. Now, lest you scoff... I will not stand for scoffing. The power companies aren't just sitting on their hands here. Texas has added more than four gigawatts of solar power to the grid. But NERC says that despite that, quote, dispatchable generation may not be sufficient to meet reserves during an, ex an extreme heat wave that is accompanied by low winds. So if, if Texas doesn't get enough sun and enough wind... They need to rely on others? Is that, I mean, that's what it sounds like, right? Additionally, New England's grid is actually in a worse position than it was last year, with the report saying they would likely need help from other grids during peaks. NERC CEO Jim Matheson said in the report, quote, This report is an especially dire warning that America's ability to keep the lights on has been jeopardized. I mean... That sounds fine, right? We don't really need lights. You all got a lot of candles and huge blocks of ice to keep things refrigerated and cold, right? In addition to the NERC report, PJM Interconnection, a power grid operator, did their own report early this year and concluded by warning they could, quote, face a serious shortfall in electric generating capacity in coming years as traditional generator retirements outpace additions. You know, what they're saying is that the current practice by the environmental wackos in the Biden Marxist regime to give incentives to power providers to shut down and demo power plants much earlier than their retirement age eh, may, may be a bad idea because we're not putting anything back in their place. Now, I looked up the PJM report. They highlighted four concerning trends that are going to severely affect reliability of power generation soon. First, an increased rate of growth in demand due to everything being pushed to being electric and due to massive data centers. Second, quote, thermal generators are retiring at a rapid pace due to government and private sector policies as well as economics. So thermal generators are simply power plants like you and I know, you know, natural gas, coal fired, that sort of thing. Power plants theoretically have a lifespan, but mostly based on those government incentives I just mentioned, they're shutting them down faster and earlier than they would have without our tax dollars being used to destroy our country. Third, speaking of the retirements, we're shutting down plants faster than we're replacing them with increased demand being forced down our throats. Uh, so how do you think that's going to go? 
probably just fine. Fourth, finally, PJM supplemental power supplies, which are composed of wind, solar, and uh, unicorn farts, I think. They say it this way, quote, PJM's interconnection queue is composed primarily of intermittent and limited duration resources. Given the operating characteristics of these resources, we need multiple megawatts of these resources to replace one megawatt of thermal generation. What they're saying is that their backup or standby capacity is composed of wind and solar, and those aren't reliable. They're not constant or consistent, so we need to dramatically overbuild the systems because we never know if these theoretical planet-saving power supplies will actually do anything for us. So for every megawatt of standard coal or natural gas-generated electricity that we just throw in the garbage, they need multiple megawatts of, uh, of this other garbage. Well, it, and multiple to me says at least three for every one. I mean, to me, that's a minimum, right? I mean, and, and, this, and this is a good idea. This is going to save the... I mean, it's just the... Why would we not do this? That's all I'm saying. At the same time, we're being pushed to go all electric everything, being told that it's cheaper, cleaner, better, except it's not really cleaner, especially when you take into account the disposal, recycling, etc. of batteries. As for cheaper, well, that's only in a socialist country that forces the price of electricity to the customer to be constant. But despite the fact that we're currently a socialist democracy, let's be honest here, we still have a little thing termed supply and demand. The greater the supply and or lower the demand, the less the cost. But what we've seen even over the last year, because of the stupid EV push, and yes, stupid is the correct and nicest word that can be used to describe it, we've seen a fairly dramatic increase in electricity costs. I know that, uh, that I've seen it on my bill, it's been really obvious. Looking at EIA.gov, which is the Energy Information Administration, they break down the average cost for electricity for different sectors like residential, commercial, industrial, etc., etc., state by state, and also roll it up into regions. So to keep the number of numbers as low as I can here in the podcast, let's look at the percent increase from February 2022 to February 2023 for each of the regions. If you want to break it down farther, click the link in the notes. So for the New England region, the cost per kilowatt hour increased by 26%. For the Middle Atlantic, the increase was 16%. East North Central was 15%. West North Central was 8%. The South Atlantic was 16%. East South Central was 15%. West South Central was 19%. Mountain was 8%. Pacific Contiguous, 8%. And Pacific Non-Contiguous, 12%. With an overall national average, when you average all of these things out, with an increase of 15%. So what's the effect? Well, besides our larger electricity bills, new EV car owners have been finding out that it's actually now the same cost or more likely more expensive to charge their car rather than fill up their last gas car with petrol. This is just one of the many reasons people are not excited about transitioning to EVs from their gas-powered internal combustion-engined cars. Now, at the same time, remember how that silly right-wing conspiracy theory came out at the beginning of the year that the Democrats are going to take your gas stoves away? Remember how every major and minor news network shot milk out of their noses as they laughed and laughed at that stupid extremist right-wing idiocy? Yeah, that was dumb, 
However, as it turns out, the federal government isn't going to do that. I mean, yeah, but that doesn't stop cities and states from mandating you cook with all clean, super cheap, ultra MAGA plentiful electricity. Yeah, the rumors started in January. The mocking started immediately. By May, Democrat-controlled New York State decided they were banning gas stoves. And as I covered in an earlier episode, number I have no idea, New York had previously banned even having gas hookups in certain newly constructed buildings. I don't remember the exact limits, but it would affect apartment buildings, office buildings, smaller industrial sites, etc. California is moving that direction, as is Michigan, I believe. And uh, last I heard, 14 different states were looking into banning gas stoves. And let's be honest, this is going to be a Department of Energy or some department mandate in the near future at a federal level. It's going to happen before too long. At the same time, Biden's administration is proposing genius moves like restricting new dishwashers to a maximum of 3.2 gallons of water per cycle rather than the current level of 5 gallons. And at that same time, they're telling manufacturers that they must cut the energy consumption by 30% because that'll save water and electricity clean, plentiful, cheap electricity. Why are we having to lower consumption? And do you have any idea how much 30% is? A dishwasher is a very simple device. Cutting power consumption by 30% simply means cut the cycle time down or force it to be maybe a cold water wash like has been introduced with clothes washers. Well, this is just ridiculous, especially since we have plenty of electricity and it's so cheap and so very clean, just saving the environment with every electron. Back to our article. This was written by Seeking Alpha. In their About section, they claim to be the world's largest investing community. I have no idea. Don't really care. I don't know if they have a political slant, but their article is interesting because of how contradictory it is. They say that we may have really hard times coming, but probably not if things don't go badly this summer, which they definitely might or might not. They state that extreme heat events put the Western U.S. at risk. Well, I did a little research using the National Centers for Environmental Information site, which is part of the NOAA, NOAA, to look at the average temperatures for the month of August, arguably one of the hottest months of the year, for every region across the country, from 1895 to 2022. What I found may shock you. They broke the country down into eight regions. Ohio Valley, Upper Midwest, Northeast, South, Southeast, Southwest, West, and Northern Rockies and Plains. The average temperature from 1895 to today in August for every single region has trended down. At most, it's been a couple degrees, nothing drastic, but the trends for all regions are down. The South, Southeast, and Ohio Valley regions are essentially flat across those 127 industrializing years. The other regions have all dropped a degree or more over that time period. Now, sure, this is regional, and there are hotter and cooler years, hotter and cooler states and cities. But looking at the average overall shows that we don't have a greater heat load. We have either maybe more people drawing power or less generation per capita or likely both. It's not heat that's causing the problem. And so as I typed out that last paragraph, maybe more people or less generation per capita, I thought, I wonder. So I went out and found the amount of electricity produced by year from 1950 to 2021 for the U.S. Then I found the population of the U.S. from 1950 to 2021. What I found may shock you. When you just do a straight up graph, 
you easily notice that the population growth doesn't curve, inflect, or really break over at all. It's nearly a straight upward sloped line the entire graph, meaning that the population growth has been pretty steady year over year. But then you see the total power generated has an aggressive upward growing slope from 1950 to about 2007, and then all of a sudden, it breaks over in just flat lines. Now, looking at the numbers from 1950 to 2007, we increased our production by an average of 67 billion kilowatt hours per year, while the population increased by about 2.7 million people per year. From 2007 to 2021, we decreased our electricity generation by about 3 billion kilowatt hours per year, but the population continued to increase at a pace of 2.5 million people per year. So let me sum this up for you. Articles like these blame the climate. Even outlets, politicians, and talking heads generally on the right will talk about stupid things like carbon neutrality and energy production using an all-of-the-above strategy. That's the leftist term, meaning, hey, let's do a lot of renewables, and yeah, you can use a couple of your planet killers for a little while longer. Now, we all remember Texas a couple years ago with major winter blackouts. Why? Because windmills don't mill them electrons so good when they're frozen solid. So these kinds of articles speak about how it's extreme climate that's causing the blackout problems, but I've got the data showing that in no region of the U.S. has the average temperature in the hottest month gone up. I suspect we'd probably see the same in the other months. I'm not going to go and graph those out. So it's not temperature. What we're actually seeing is that the U.S. is cutting production while continuing to grow in population. We're computerizing everything. We're planting massive energy-intensive server farms and just wait for the massive number of large marijuana greenhouses. They need large amounts of power. We can't use natural gas anymore. That's another thing. And so we must go electric. Can't use gasoline anymore. We must go electric. Of course, we'll have rolling blackouts and total blackouts because of this. That'll be fine. Oh, we'll also have rationing, I'm sure. I mean, if you want to see where this is heading, look to South Africa. Well, South Africa has been trying to follow the UN climate alarmist woke ideologies, and they've won rolling blackouts, massive blackouts, in fact. <laughs> winner, winner, blackout dinner. I don't know. They're currently predicting 16-hour rolling blackouts this winter. 16 hours. Citizens have given up on freezing anything at this point because of these blackouts. I mean... How are you going to do that? And they're even saying that trying to refrigerate anything is becoming impossible. Unemployment is really high because companies are shutting down because they don't have any power. If we keep moving in the direction we're moving, uh, it won't be long for us to catch up with uh, good old planet-loving South Africans, or as I like to call it, utopia. In fact, Exxon apparently came out just the other day and said the idea that we're going to reach carbon neutrality by 2050 is laughable. They said that the only way to do that is to cut available power way back, causing massively spiking electricity prices. And they didn't say this, but it would necessarily cause blackouts, because when demand exceeds supply, unless you've got some deeper magic from before the dawn of time, not everyone gets what they're wanting. Huh. I mean, who would have thunk that? Am I right? So, why? Why are we doing this? Well, I mean, I've covered this in the past as well, but let's touch on this for a moment. There are only a few reasons that individuals or societies would commit this level of national or global suicide. The first, let's just say it's true. 
there's incontrovertible evidence that we are literally destroying the planet and we have precious little time left before human life on this planet stops. And taking these drastic electrification steps are the only way to save the planet. Uh, okay, well, A, we, that's you and I, people that have the ability to think past what we're being force-fed every day in the mainstream media, we know that the global warming nonsense is not true at all. The science at best, and I'm being very generous here, at best is inconclusive for a whole host of reasons. Point B under my first point of saying it's true, we also know that just because we're using electricity doesn't mean it's clean. There's a lot of dirty that goes into batteries, windmills, solar panels, and conventional electricity generation. Again, the data says that it's essentially a push, if not more damaging for the environment, to follow these climate alarmists. Second, society believes it's true. So it's not actually true, but people believe that this is true. That would be the, the second reason we would commit national suicide like this. So regardless of the data, for whatever reason, whether it's ignorance or willing ignorance, the desire to feel as if they're on a mission, they don't know the data. They don't care about the data. They've just decided that what they've been told must be right. Therefore, the globe is warming and we must do everything we can to fix it. I feel that this is most of the general climate panicked population. This is most of the Greta Thunbergs. All she knows is what she's told and that's good enough for her. This is not the Al Gore types. We'll get to them next. These are the people that I would best term useful idiots. Third, the third reason that we would do this would be that you're an evil elitist scratching and clawing for power, control, and money. This would be your Al Gores, your John Kerry's, your Bill Nye's, although I think that Bill Nye is at least a fractional part useful idiot as well. A good way to distinguish these people, you know, those that cry global warming and have for years or decades, despite the evidence, while owning mansions on the coast or an island somewhere, while flying private jets to climate conferences, claiming to be carbon neutral because they pay some child in a foreign country a couple pennies to plant some trees, yeah, this group would include the depopulationists, even those that want to shrink the global population by, you know, anywhere from 10 to 90%, not for the sake of the planet, but for the sake of their ability to control whoever's left. Now, there is a fourth reason, but at least as a specifically stated reason, this group would be, I think, minimal, and that's people that actually worship the earth. This would include a lot of those that are spiritual, but not religious. It would include witches, as they're generally earth worshipers. I don't think there are many that specifically call themselves worshipers of the earth, even though most of those that are militant about climate activism do de facto worship the earth. What can be said about all of these groups is that they don't believe in or worship God. The most disappointing group to me would be Christians that are climate alarmists. What are you doing? They may believe in God, but they don't believe or maybe don't know, which isn't good either, his word. And they have a very low view of the God who claims to be omnipotent and sovereign. Now, if you believe that we're going to burn the earth up and kill humanity, well, if that's how God predestined this earth and humanity to end, so be it. There's literally nothing we could ever hope to do to stop it. If he didn't predestine that, which he didn't, then why do we think we're sovereign over God? The bottom line is that having dominion over the earth, filling up the earth with kids, maintaining, working, and using the earth, 
That's biblical. That's what we've been commanded to do. Worshiping the earth, ignoring what the Bible says, living our lives in fear, not trusting in God, not trusting in God's word, placing the planet over humanity, that's what we like to call sin. James 1, 13 to 15 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. For those pushing this climate panic, the elitists that absolutely know exactly what they're doing— but they're doing it anyway for profit and control. This describes them perfectly. Tempted, lured by their desire for power and wealth. Sin, because they acted on these temptations. Remember, temptation on its own is not sin. Jesus was tempted, but without sin. Temptation, when dwelt upon, when acted on, that's when it becomes sin. And their sin, resulting in their wealth, their power, their prestige, well, it brings forth death. Now, for others... Our sin might be fear. We're told to fear not over and over again in the Bible. Do we believe in God and his word or do we not? Is science sovereign or is God? There's only one fear that you and I and the elitists should have, and that's in Romans 3.18, which says there is no fear of God before their eyes. Yeah, we need to fear God. To fear God is to give reverence to God, to recognize his kingship, his lordship, his sovereignty. To mislead and deceive the image bearers of God shows that you have no fear of your creator. To fear science, scientists, data sets, and imminent doom rather than God is sinful. Bottom line, God's got this. As always, we say that we're not called to trash his planet that God gave us, but generating electricity, promoting health, driving cars, increasing lifespans, and connecting those around the globe is not trashing the planet. Thinking that we can destroy the planet shows that we believe God is a bumbling old man just kind of hanging on for the ride up there. To believe in global climate catastrophe resulting in humanity being wiped out is to not believe the Bible. To believe that man has the ability to destroy this planet is to have a very, very low view of a supposedly omnipotent sovereign God. We can't expect the unsaved, the unregenerate, to even begin to care about what we as Christians say. Just keep that in mind. God must take the first action and replace their heart of stone with a heart of flesh. You know, open their eyes to the truth. And until that happens, if it ever happens, Christians, their book of mythology, and their magical sky god will be nothing but fanciful lunatic nonsense. So for people like Al Gore, this is all he's got. Sadly, this world, the wealth, the power he's accumulated, the evil and strife he's perpetrated, the hell he's created for the average Joe like me, like you, this is the closest he'll ever get to heaven. He's literally living his best life now. Incidentally, if you think that Joel Osteen is right, that we should be living our best life now, well, let me just say this. Get away from that wolf. You do not want your best life to be right now. Anyway, could Gore be saved? Could God regenerate Al Gore's heart? Sure. But the Bible warns us that we can only harden our hearts and minds so many times, and when a certain point is reached, different for everyone, God leaves us in that unregenerate state to suffer the consequences we asked for. Now, is this where Gore resides, or Carrie? I have no idea, but maybe. If the scientific method were really followed, climate scientists would look at every possible explanation for climate change, and every possible outcome— 
This would include the fact that this planet is created, that God has complete control, that not only the beginning is written, but the ending is already written as well. And to think that we're going to change that is the height of arrogant stupidity. I'm not saying that all scientists would agree that the Bible nailed it upon inspection, but we can't even start to understand this planet or make good decisions when we ignore an entire front-to-back explanation. Well, as always, with literally everything, the only way to have anything close to an understanding of the world and this existence is to know God. The only way to truly combat this evil manipulation of man using climate-based fear is to show them, and by them I'm lumping in Christians and those that believe themselves to be Christians that believe this, that God is sovereign, that fear is sinful, that the entire lifespan of this planet has already been set and has been written about, and that this planet and humanity will survive until God remakes everything perfect for his children to inhabit. And this is why I can run conditioned air and drive my gas guzzler and eat meat and leave the lights on in the house and sleep very soundly and comfortably at night because the room is nice and cold in the summer and nice and warm in the winter. As I start this next segment, oh, by the by, welcome back to part 16 of the 45 Communist Goals for America as read into the congressional record, but, oh uh, yeah, you said it, by a Democrat in 1963. So as I start this next segment, I just have to wonder a few things. What is Ukraine's goals for America? Seems like they're kind of pulling the strings these days. What are the conservatives' goals for America? I know the Republicans have a party platform, but, I mean, are they serious about it? Because it doesn't seem like they've been serious about it for um, most of their existence. What are the Christians' goals for America? It really seems like it depends on which flavor of Christian we're talking about. Some are okay with it just falling apart as they hide inside the church walls. Some believe their job is to prop up the decaying population as society collapses, but not discuss why it's collapsing or do anything about it. You know, politics and current events are just kind of off limits. Some believe that their job is to remake themselves as much as possible, to look and act like the general society around them, to appeal to them and get butts in the seats. And some believe it's to join with those collapsing the nation and push even harder in that direction. And then you have a few that are willing to discuss the collapse and why the collapse and connect the mess to what we know is truth in the scriptures and give real information as to how to view and how to affect the world, not just in a positive way, but in a godly way. Eh, but then I think, hey, I wonder what snacks I have in the pantry and I lose complete focus. Anyway, whatever I was saying probably doesn't matter. We should get started, right? We jumped around a bit in part 15, so we need to go back a step and pick up those we skipped over. In last episode, little Timmy had fallen down the well. Barky was off to get some help, and we had covered 42 of the 45 goals thus far, out of which an equivalent of 28 and a half had been accomplished. Today we start with goal number 42. <sighs> and it's a good one. Goal number 42. Quote, Create the impression that violence and insurrection are legitimate aspects of the American tradition, that students and special interest groups should rise up and use united force to solve economic, political, or social problems. Now, I'm clearly going to have to go into a very long, protracted, detailed definition of what they mean in this goal, as you probably have never even heard of 
groups using violence, claiming legitimacy in order to get their way. <laughs> All right, so look, insurrection and riot are two very different yet similar things, right? Uh, looking at a few definitions of these, let's start with insurrection. We find the following. According to dictionary.com, it's, quote, an act or instance of rising in revolt, rebellion or resistance against civil authority or an established government. Merriam-Webster says, quote, an act or instance of revolting against civil authority or an established government. And dictionary.cambridge.org defines it as, quote, an organized attempt by a group of people to defeat their government and take control of their country, usually by violence. Now, riot, defined by the same three sources, we find dictionary.com, first definition only, quote, a noisy, violent public disorder caused by a group or crowd of persons as by a crowd protesting against another group, a government policy, etc. in the streets. Merriam-Webster.com says, quote, a violent public disorder, specifically a tumultuous disturbance of the public peace by three or more persons assembled together and acting with a common intent. And dictionary.cambridge.org says, quote, an occasion when a large number of people behave in a noisy, violent, and uncontrolled way in public, often as a protest. So it should be fairly obvious that we see the difference is that one is directed toward just about anything. The other is directed toward some level of governmental authority. We also know that insurrection, from a common understanding, typically has a goal of unseating or taking over the current government, not just a noisy or violent protest against them, but a takeover. We also know that the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, part of the post-Civil War amendments, said that if you're part of an insurrection, you can't hold office. This is why the left has so desperately pushed the narrative that January 6th was an insurrection and not a protest or a riot. And further, that President Trump incited the insurrection, called for the insurrection, and participated in the insurrection. The left is terrified of Trump, and rightly so, as he's now not just out to be president and do the things that he thinks he should. He's out for vengeance at this point, and they should be worried. That said, Trump was not an insurrectionist, and the January 6th event, at best, was a riot. It was a noisy protest against the government. There was some violence, although the only deaths were two of the protesters, regardless of the lies that are being told to us. But at no point was Grandma, or the head of the Proud Boys, trying to literally take over the government. Eh, this might be a bit off the path, Ron. No, it's not a digression. Maybe a quasi-digression. We know that riots and insurrections have occurred throughout the history of the United States, and we know that it feels like riots have become the norm, typically perpetrated by the left and generally race-related at this point in our history. So I was curious if the frequency of riots got worse around 1960. If so, are they still getting more frequent? Furthermore, are riots more likely during Republican or Democratic presidencies and some other things? I wanted to know a lot of stuff. So... I found a Wikipedia page entitled, List of Incidents of Civil Unrest in the United States. 
And I took the long list and I dumped it into Excel, did some of my Excelian magic, and gathered some interesting data. So let's uh, take a look at some of the facts I gleaned from this here data. The Wikipedia page covers the full history of the United States, and they have 436 incidents listed. Uh, there were six incidents in the 18th century, 99 in the 19th, 270 in the 20th, and 61 so far in the 21st. But keep in mind, the 18th and the 21st centuries are only partial centuries, so we should look at the number of riots per year to get a better idea. For the 18th century, we had 0.24 incidents per year, 0.99 per year for the 19th century, 2.7 per year in the 20th, and 2.7 per year so far in the 21st. So clearly the riots went up in the 1900s. If we look at this politically, starting with President Lincoln, since the Republican Party started with him, we have the following data. We've had 31 presidents starting with Lincoln, 11 have been Democrat, 20 have been Republican. The 11 Democrats have held presidential power for 66 and a half years, resulting in an average of six years per Democrat president. The 20 Republican presidents have held power for 96 years, resulting in an average of 4.8 years per Republican president. There have been 213 incidents during Democrat rule. 174 during Republican rule. The Democrats have had 19.4 incidents per president and 3.2 incidents for every Democrat presidential year. The Republicans have had 8.7 incidents per president, or less than half the rate of Democrats, and 1.8 incidents for every Republican presidential year, slightly over half of the rate of Democrats. Now, I'm not sure about you, but I found that breakdown interesting. So, knowing that the communist goals, although read into the congressional record by a Democrat in 1963, were actually developed in 1958. So, how many incidents per year before and after 1958? Okay. Prior to 1958, there were 199 incidents listed for 180.5 years, resulting in 1.1 incidents per year. From 1958 to today, there have been 237 incidents for 65 and a half years, resulting in 3.6 incidents per year. I guess we could say that there was a definite, you know, uptick over three times after 1958. That's interesting as well, isn't it? Finally, looking at the year-by-year -year data, we see a massive spike in 1966, 67, and 68, with 85 of the total incidents taking place in those three years alone, a decade and less from when the commies laid out their goals. So the goal again was create the impression that violence and insurrection are legitimate aspects of the American tradition, that students and special interest groups should rise up and use united force to solve economic, political, or social problems. How often have we heard, both on the right and the left, that our founding fathers didn't take no crap from nobody? They rose up and put the smack down on the British, and we should do likewise. Why is it that, especially noticeable in recent history due to the massive number of cell phones, security cameras, and the 24-7 news, we find that there are professional protesters that traverse the country, 
These are always on the left, by the way. Why is it that we have people that interview the protesters and we find that many of them have no idea why they're protesting? They were handed a sign, promised a hundred bucks, so they got on the bus and went to where they were needed. Why are we able to tie very wealthy, big-dollar donors, you know, like George Soros, to these grassroots protests? Why is it that the media makes a massive deal over anything those on the right do, but will literally have fires from riots behind them and cover for the rioters, calling it a mostly peaceful protest? And why is it we don't see this on the right? We only seem to see this on the left, the socialist left, the left that's becoming more inundated with borderline or actual communists. Eh, but before we jump to any conclusions, maybe we're not unusual. Maybe this is just how things are around the world. So again, I found a Wikipedia page entitled List of Riots. Wikipedia, incidentally, is great for finding data compilations. Now this has riots spanning back to the end of the BC era, all the way to current day, all around the world. It's an impressive list. This is not the same kind of list as what we just previously looked at, but this will give us an idea of scope. So for reference, the United States has had 142 riots on this list. In the same time frame, England had 50, if you count England, the United Kingdom, UK, and Britain. Germany had about 20, France 17, Italy, Spain, Portugal, all less than 10. So what about Russia or the Soviet Union, and what about China? Well, China had 30, according to this list, which for a country that size, uh, that's remarkably nothing. And Russia or the Soviet Union had 13 in that time frame, just under 10% of what the United States had. The Russians have never and still don't play with protesters, rioters, and insurrectionists. We're seeing this even today as Russia uh, instituted a draft to get more expendable meat shields into the war with Ukraine. According to the BBC, in March of 2022, about 4,300 protesters were arrested across Russia protesting the war. In September 2022, another 1,300 were arrested protesting the war and the draft. And these aren't friendly arrests. In many cases, these are brutal events. Now, to me, I'll be honest, Russia probably has a somewhat more correct view of how to address riots. Now, we, of course, have the right in the Constitution to peacefully protest. In my opinion, the authorities should not play with those that violate the peaceful portion of that right. I'm not saying they should just brutalize protesters. And it has nothing to do with the topic being protested. It has to do with the method of the protest. Is this peaceful or not? Is this a protest or is this a violent riot? When you look at the BLM riots, those labeled as mostly peaceful, um, no, they weren't. And everyone knows it. Those raping, brutalizing, murdering others should have been shot on sight. I don't care about your gender. I don't care about your color. I don't care about your ideology. You should have been shot on sight. Now, I know that sounds violent, maybe a bit harsh, but they've willingly forfeited their right to life if they're brutalizing or killing others. As for those that were destroying property, well, they need to be shackled and thrown into the back of a box truck until they can be taken and thrown into a cell for a good long while. And then those that were there that were not violent. They need to be allowed to protest or they need to be sent home until the criminals are cleared off the streets then allowed to return peacefully, you know, to protest. 
The same goes for the January 6th protesters. As I said, I don't care about the political persuasion of the cause. It's the method of protest that matters to me. So the Russians have a better concept of how to handle protests and riots. Yeah, but they might be a little too much on the harsh and authoritarian side. The U.S., in contrast, is unfair and inconsistent in how the authorities deal with protests and riots, since it's typically the left protesting and rioting, generally in larger cities, which are always leftist-leaning and leftist-run. The media covering them is generally coming from the left. And the leftist politicians are excusing and even encouraging the actions. Uh, so generally we come out as looking soft on all of these criminal acts. But as we've seen with the January 6th protest, not an insurrection, those on the right for charges of parading or, you know, just milling about, are held in prison with no bail, regardless of if you're a 70-year-old grandparent or a guy in a buffalo horn hat or whatever. This is simply because those people were on the right side of the political spectrum. Now, once again, going back to the Constitution and recovering the eyes of Lady Justice would go a long way to fixing the problems we see in this country with regard to protests and riots. But to the point of our topic at hand, did the communists accomplish this goal? Yeah, I mean, once again, I can't say they did it for sure, but there is no question that this goal was accomplished, and the timing of the general increase and the spike itself are both curiously coincidental to the communist goals. I mean, wouldn't you say... The communists aren't stupid. They're very wrong in their political ideology, but they aren't stupid. For the same reason they stomped down protests and riots in their own country, we shouldn't be shocked that they'd promote them in our country. The more internal strife and conflict, the more infighting we do, the more people are convinced that they've been wronged and violence is the only answer, the less prepared we are to defend ourselves from the outside, the less focused we are on ensuring the Constitution and the rule of law are followed, and the more worn down and fractured our country becomes. If riots and protests reach the right point, then you have the citizens begging for an authoritarian to take control. And isn't that what we're seeing from the January 6th parading? If you listen to those on the left, the media, the politicians, and the average citizen, anyone involved should be destroyed and wiped from the face of the planet. And anyone that has the same political persuasion as those that protested should likewise be eliminated. Additionally, social media should be monitored for so-called misinformation and controlled and censored by our governmental overlords. Those promoting what's been termed as misinformation should be thrown in prison and never seen or heard from again. In fact, those that dare say anything against the leftist narrative should be wiped from the face of the planet. Now, this is what communists want. This is what communism does. Presents an authoritarian governance style, then creates scenarios that cause the population at large to beg for the government to take over. So, I couldn't possibly see how we can't give the commies a full point on this one. That brings the communist score to 29.5 out of 43, or 68.6% .6 of their goals <laughs> realized. Or nearly a percent better than last time. So, I mean, you know, good for them. Bad for us, but good for them, right? And with that, I'll say bye for now. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, 
And until next time, God bless. Okay, week 19. Before I dive into this one, and this one should be pretty quick, I won't have an update next week, but we'll double up with weeks 20 and 21 the following week at some point. I'll be out of town next week celebrating my oldest nephew's wedding. Brandon and Alyssa, congratulations in advance. I'm really happy for both of you. And along with that, the update will not be kind for week 21. I'm admittedly really, really bad with maintaining my routines with vacations. And I'll also admittedly not be worrying about any sort of a diet. You know, with a couple days of driving, family time, late nights, good food, well, it kind of cuts into everything. So week 20 should be okay. Week 21, eh, get ready to laugh or gasp. But that's in the future. No need to worry about that right now. All right, let's get down to business. So the last week got me somewhat back on track with regard to weight loss. I lost 0.8 pounds. Nothing spectacular, nothing to brag about, but a loss is a loss. I found myself kind of slacking the last few weeks, and if you've been listening to my updates, you know I've mentioned that I'm in the danger zone right now. It's it's too easy to lighten up because I feel good. At the same time, in the past, the one other time I went on a large weight loss journey like this, I know that I pushed and pushed and burnt myself out, so I want to be mindful of that. I'm out of that region where my weight will affect my activities or put extra strain on my back or potentially cause anything medically to go wrong. So I'm okay with kind of uh, pausing or slowing down a little bit. Now, I don't want to go backwards, but I'm okay right now. A lot of people really love the feeling of eating right and limiting intake and exercising on a regular basis. I like the results of those. Oh, I hate the process with an intense, passionate hatred. No matter what, when, or how, it's always a slog for me. So doing it, but learning how the body acts and reacts and interacts with the mind, the will, and the drive, I mean... Basically, why can't this be easy? All I want to do is eat what I want, when I want, in the quantity I want, while being a lazy slug when I want, and be in perfect health. I mean, is that too much to ask? And yes, yes it is. Anyway, with the 0.8 pounds lost, it brings my overall weight to 182.4, which is a loss over these 19 weeks of 32 pounds, an average of 1.7 pounds per week. Still, 3.5 pounds ahead of my goal pace, That's good. So I've put this as a light green as it's under my goal of 1.5 pounds per week and understandably so, but it's a loss and that's good. Now I'll skip to Bible reading and devotions really quick. Those are continuing to go well. I picked up the Bible reading after having a low week last week um, and unless something really unforeseen happens, I'll finish up the Bible reading by the end of June. I'm one day shy of December in my daily Bible. Devotions continue to move through Exodus. Both of these are solid green. Okay, pages read. So last week I read 222 pages. I didn't make much progress on my book of depth, unfortunately, but the lighter reading book I plowed my way through and then got a solid start on book two in the series. So the book I finished is entitled The Third Target. It's by Joel C. Rosenberg. If I remember correctly, the author is a Christian, and although he's not writing purely Christian books, there's always a Christian theme in them, which is nice. The book is book one of three of the J.B. Collins series. This is a political thriller written in 2015, set as a current event at that time in the Middle East. Uh, He's really good at mixing actual people and events, like real people and real events, with fictitious people and events, and then plausible scenarios based on the current political climate. 
Now, I had previously read the three-book David Shirazi series entitled The Twelfth Imam, The Tehran Initiative, and Damascus Countdown, and after reading those, I decided to get the first book of the new series, which is the one I just finished. Then, then it sat on my shelf, and I checked Amazon here just a few minutes ago, eh, for six years. It's sat on the shelf for six years. It's amazing that I left it there for that long. This one is a fast-paced 423 pages full of twists and turns and a large number of chapters ending with me saying, whoa. Now, I would absolutely recommend this book and the previous series. Uh, I tentatively recommend anything he's written. I can't vouch for the other books, but I'd have a hard time believing they're not all as good as the four and a half books I've read so far. Anyway, with those pages, I crossed the 3,600 page mark, now at 3,635 pages, or as of this update, 242.3% of my goal pace. So I've met my goal for the year at this point, clearly grossly underestimating that goal. But last year, I read like four books for 650 pages, so I was trying to be realistic. I guess I forgot how much I like reading. So now what? Well, I've been tracking the books I've read since 2016, and I've been tracking the total pages since 2018. And yes, I could go back and calculate the pages for 2016 and 2017, but uh, no, I'm not going to be doing that. So now it's a matter of beating past years, I guess. I've already eclipsed 2020 and 2022, so my next target is 2021 when I read 19 books for 4,317 pages. As of now, like I said, I'm at 3,635 pages, and that's 16 books. So we'll shoot for beating 2021 next, which I don't think that's going to be a problem, and then we'll go from there. So clearly, this one is going to be a solid green. And that's it. That's the update. Hey, we'll... Uh, Talk again in a few weeks. Okay, bye.